everyone, and welcome to the San Juan Snowcast. I'm your host, Chris. Today is Wednesday, March 30th, 2022, and you're tuned in to episode 23. Welcome back, folks. Wow. Can you believe that Miracle March is almost over? There were some real good days in there in March. But then again, there were also some really hot, sunny days in there, too. And in this episode, we'll be talking more about how all that springy weather has affected our snowpack. The last few weeks, well, they've been a roller coaster, both in terms of our weather, the riding conditions out there, and also just in terms of stoke and morale. The backcountry around Telluride has been unusually quiet since Devin's passing. And it seems like losing the Stokemaster just took the wind out of everyone's sails. I mean, without Devin, who else is going to be out there at dawn setting the skin track or boot pack? In my corner of the San Juans, folks have been slowing down, processing things, squeezing our hugs just a bit tighter than usual, and taking the time to check in with each other. You know, we never have to go skiing or riding in the backcountry, and I think a lot of people just needed a break. A break from dealing with our stressful and unpredictable persistent slab, A break from feeling the need to always get after it in a mountain town community. A break from the expectations of others and of ourselves. And as obsessed as I am with skiing in the backcountry, I took a break too. And a few days out of the ski boots last week, well, that was much needed. But in this week's show, we're looking ahead. We're going to look at the current state of the snowpack before we dive into the future. I'm talking about corn season and the spring transition. What's it take for good corn to form? How can we check before we go out? And how do we know when it's time to rip skins and shred? Well, just before this most recent snowfall, I was skiing corn on south-facing slopes on Monday. And those days, well, they'll be back before we know it. So what better time than to dust off the sharp and spiky stuff and begin thinking about how to get out early and get after it before the getting's gone. So put a dab of zinc on your nose and bring some extra dry socks for your toes because the warm sunny days of corn harvesting are coming and because the snowcast starts now. All right. Well, before we dive into talking about snow and avalanches, I want to take a moment to follow up on last week's episode, and I just want to say thanks. Episode 22 of the podcast, it was a hard one. It was all about dealing with death and risk and the reality of the dangers of backcountry skiing. It was also a lot about Devin Overton, whose loss on March 17th created an unpatchable hole in the fabric of the Telluride backcountry community. Within the first three days of publishing that episode, it became the most listened to one ever. And since publishing it last Wednesday, I've received such an incredible outpouring of support from so many of you. It turns out that a lot of us have been through similar tragedies in our lives as backcountry skiers and riders. And many of you could relate to the inner turmoil that I feel around going out solo in avalanche terrain. It always amazes me how... Your lived experience can feel so unique, but at the same time, completely universal. I mean, we're all human, and the electrical synapses that make me feel, think, grieve, play, laugh, cry, well, they're firing in your head too. So thank you for that reminder. Thank you for showing me that we are all intrinsically linked by our humanity first 
and our love for sliding on snow second. Thank you for sharing some love and appreciation. And uh, yeah, thanks. I'm so glad that speaking my truth helps so many of you take a moment, even if it was just a moment, to pause, think, reflect, and feel. It's how we get better, people. And uh, I think it's how we grow. The memorial service for Devin took place on Monday afternoon in Telluride. And the transfer warehouse was packed. Friends and familiar faces standing shoulder to shoulder, riding the roller coaster of remembrance, from laughter and smiles one moment to tears and heavy hearts the next. I spent a lot of time thinking and looking down, wiping tears from my cheeks, towing the icy, muddy sludge on the ground as I listened to the stories told by Devin's family and his friends. But then I suddenly remembered that there's no roof on the transfer warehouse. And when I looked up, I saw wispy clouds racing across a pale blue sky. I saw signs of the incoming storm. I saw infinite possibilities. And I saw Devin carving huge symmetric arcs across cloud and sky, floating like he always did, high above the ground that the rest of us stood on. In last week's show, I didn't really offer any words of wisdom or major takeaways or lessons I've learned on dealing with death. And that's because I'm still learning. And it's a never-ending journey, likely riddled with more tragedy and more trauma, and certainly more questions than answers. But what I've reflected on the most recently and what I heard time and time again about Devin was just how many moments of joy, triumph, and transformation he squeezed out of life and that he shared with the people around him, often through the pursuit of backcountry splitboarding. And while I jokingly jest about backcountry skiing and riding as simply sliding down snow out in the woods, it is and can be so much more than that. It's creating connection and collaboration with your partners. It's immersing yourself in a time and a place. It's observing everything around you. It's flowing with the landscape. It's challenging and it's beautiful. And if you've been doing it long enough, you know that it can fill your life with a magic and fullness that words cannot really describe. Devin's life, it was full of this magic and he thrived on it. He sought it out basically every single day he could. It's not about the fact that he died doing what he loved. It's the fact that he lived doing what he loved. Hmm. Yeah, this week, I don't have any audio remembrances to share here on the pod, and I think it was just too soon for folks, but maybe someday. The journey that we're all on, it's a long one. And personally, I'm not in a huge rush to move along. I'm just going to keep taking it one step at a time, like a supersized Devin boot pack, knowing that eventually those steps are going to bring me somewhere higher, somewhere beautiful, and somewhere truly epic. (sighs) All right. Well, bringing the focus back to our snowpack, we are witnessing some serious changes. That's right. Miracle March is coming to an end. And to be honest, maybe it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. Sure, we had some good storms in there, 
but there was also a ton of warm, springy weather that put a serious melt on our pack. So, where do we stand? Well, looking at the Snowtail Snow Water Equivalent graphs for the San Juan River Basins, we're currently sitting at 93% of our 30-year median snowpack for this time of year. And sadly, it looks like the snowpack peaked at 17 inches of water on March 17th, the same day we lost Devin. Since then, we've been in decline with warm temperatures and sunny skies melting away almost two inches of snow water equivalent from the snowpack across the San Juans. Now, our average peak snowpack date is April 2nd, but unless our current storm can bring us back up those two inches, it would appear that the snowpack curve is going to begin its downward trend a bit earlier than average this year. It is still encouraging to see snowfall in the model forecasts, and after this week's storm, there's potential for another storm to come next week, but without huge totals in sight, the overall trend for our snowpack will be melting and consolidation. Before Monday night snowfall, things were becoming pretty springy around the San Juans. And the time has come to talk about the spring transition. The transition within our snowpack starts top down, with sunshine and warm ambient temperatures causing the surface of the snowpack to begin to melt. Now, throughout most of the winter, we know these melt-freeze crusts as sun crusts, where anything south-facing gets torched by the sun, moistens, then refreezes at night to create the dreaded zipper crust or just plain old breakable crust. In the winter, we avoid this awful snow like the plague by skiing or riding on aspects that have a more oblique angle to the sun and therefore get less solar radiation. (laughs) Now, did you know in higher latitudes, like up in the Tetons, they can actually ski powder on south aspects for days after their storms? Crazy, right? Man, around here, if the sun pops, we can go from a powder day one day to widespread sun crust within just 24 hours. Oh, hey, sad trombone. It's been a while. At this time of year, mid to late March, as the sun climbs higher in the sky and daytime temperatures get even warmer, those crusts start to spread out onto more aspects, and the melt-free cycle begins. Now, the cycle is key, because both the melt and the freeze need to live up to their end of the bargain for everything to pan out like we want it to. And really what's happening is that the crust is formed when liquid water freezes at the surface and bonds together clusters of rounded polycrystal snow grains. Then, when the snow and the heat melt those frozen bonds between the large, rounded grains, those bonds break, freeing up little corn kernels of snow on the surface and creating a very nice, soft, and predictable surface for carving hero turns, aka corn skiing. In early spring, the crust starts to form on every aspect at lower elevations. And then as temperatures really warm up and when the skies go blue, we find ourselves dealing with melt-freeze crusts at higher elevations too. Now, it is at this precise time of year that I become a crust connoisseur and begin tracking where the crusts are present, how thick they are, and what's going on underneath the crust. Sometimes, in the early spring transition, we get tricked into thinking it's corn skiing season when we're actually in pseudo-corn season. Now, what I mean by pseudo-corn is that these crusts start on the surface and then they grow downward into the snowpack. At first, they're thin, and then they get thicker as liquid water moves down into the pack and freezes the snow below the surface. Now, sometimes we'll get onto a refrozen crust in the morning and think, sweet, it's supportive. 
Now we just need to time it right and wait for it to soften up and we'll be riding corn later this afternoon. And that's not necessarily faulty logic because this is our general approach in corn season. But it is important to understand just how thick that crust is. Because if it's thin, then you may actually be standing on top of a wintry layered snowpack with all its problems and persistent weak layers still intact. And yeah, that's not the rock solid setup that we all yearn for in corn season. So how do you know when a crust is thick enough? Well, early on and throughout my tour, I just get out of my skis and I bust through that crust and I find out what's lurking below. I like to use my boot or my pole to punch through that initial melt-freeze crust and take a look at the thickness and the hardness of the crust. I don't think there's any hard and fast rule for crust thickness, but I'd like to see an icy crust under my skis that's at least four to six inches deep and is fully refrozen before I feel comfortable calling it open corn season. The reality is that we are relying on that melt-freeze crust to basically support our weight on the slope and to protect us from whatever junk show facet fest nightmare may be lurking down below. If that crust is too thin, then you're not actually standing on a transitional snowpack, and you could run the risk of triggering a persistent weak layer deeper in the pack or the snow right underneath that crust. The reality is that it takes several days of sunshine and above freezing temperatures at and above tree line to create the melt. And then we also need several hours of below freezing temperatures each night to create the freeze. And every time we get a spring storm with that few inches of snowfall, the whole cycle starts all over again. And we must patiently wait the requisite number of days of warm, sunny weather for the crust to reform and grow corn. A question that often comes up in the spring transition time is how do you know if it froze overnight? Well, to keep it really simple, in reality, it's not. There are two ways that the surface of the snowpack can cool overnight. One, through sensible heat flux, which is the direct exchange of heat between the snowpack and the atmosphere. And then two, the long wave radiation balance, which is the interplay between long wave radiation being emitted or absorbed by the snowpack. All right, let's talk about temperatures first. The easiest way to know if it froze overnight is to go to the CAIC website or anywhere where you can find weather station data and start by looking at weather stations up high at like 13,000 feet. And I look at those temperature graphs and I ask myself, okay, did temps go below 32 degrees Fahrenheit? Okay. For how many hours? I write this info down and then I repeat this process again for stations at 11,000 feet, 10,000 feet, 9,000 feet until I find the freezing level or the elevation at which temperatures did not go below freezing at all. Now, by looking at all this information, I'm really investigating the sensible heat flux part of overnight cooling, i.e. if air temperatures were below freezing, then the surface of the snowpack, which came in contact with that air, should also be below freezing, according to the principles of conduction. But understanding the radiation balance, it's a little more tricky. But to keep it simple here, let's just talk about long wave radiation. Basically, there is a constant flux of long wave radiation happening between Earth and space. The Earth emits long wave radiation out into space, and sometimes when clouds are present, it bounces off those clouds back to Earth. Now, you're probably asking yourself, why do we care? Well, we care because snow is very efficient at radiating heat, and when skies are clear overnight, long wave radiation comes straight up through the snowpack and goes out into space. This can supercool the top few millimeters of our snowpack and lead to a solidly refrozen surface in the morning, even if temperatures didn't get far below freezing overnight. But there's a catch. 
because this only works when there are no objects present, such as clouds, tree canopies, etc., that reflect that long wave radiation back down towards the snowpack. So if we do have overnight clouds, or if you are in thick forest, then those overhead radiation blockers effectively create a greenhouse effect, and that's going to prevent the snow surface from fully freezing. I experienced this yesterday on my tour, where if I was skinning through the forest, the snowpack was completely unfrozen and unconsolidated, and I would punch through the surface to the wet layers below. But as soon as I stepped out into an open meadow, well, that surface held firm, and I could easily move around on top of it. That also explains why on Monday, even though we had a weak overnight freeze, we were able to find good corn conditions on an open south-facing slope, because there was no trees, and it was a really clear starry night the night before. While cloud cover isn't really something that you can see on a weather station chart, you can look outside before bed, and again in the early morning, to see with your own eyes. Was it cloudy, or was it clear? High clouds are not as bad as low clouds, which create a dramatic greenhouse effect, Another way to check is to do the trailhead test as soon as you arrive, sometimes before you even put on your boots. So if you step out of the car and you can't walk around on the surface of the snow at the trailhead without punching through it, and you're not in thick trees, then don't bother skinning up. That surface likely did not get a good overnight freeze. And as such, it's going to break down a lot quicker throughout the day. Okay, all of that was a bit nerdy, so let's recap. What's our spring corn season morning ritual? One, check the weather stations for freezing temps. Two, look outside and check the cloud cover. And three, at the trailhead, check the supportability of that crust before you even put your skis on. Now, the beauty of corn skiing is that once we've determined we're standing on a nice, well-developed melt-freeze crust, and it did freeze solid overnight, then it's all just about timing. As the day warms up, we'll see that surface begin to soften, and the best time to descend is usually when the first couple of inches have become soft and edgeable. Again, how can you check in the field? Well, as I'm skinning along, I flip my pole over and try to draw on the snow. First thing in the morning, your pole handle's gonna skitter across that icy crust without making a dent. But later on in the day, you'll be able to carve into the surface, showing just how much of it has softened up. Now, how do you know when it's too soft and time to bail? Well, if you step out of your skis and sink beyond the top of your boots, then yikes, you're way too late and you should get off that slope as quickly and safely as possible. That slushy surface means there's potential for wet, loose avalanches, and you should watch out for overhead snow coming down on top of you, or be aware that you could cause a wet, loose avalanche from below your skis if you push on the mush a bit too hard. Another wet avalanche problem to look out for is the wet slab, and with our lingering persistent weak layers in the snowpack, we should definitely all be on guard for that hazard later this year. We had a very similar snowpack structure last spring, and we saw numerous large wet slabs cut loose when the heat really turned on in April. And heck, we already saw some of these wet slabs this past weekend, and I would expect more of this action to come after the storm moves on out and we return to warm, sunny weather. All right, well, that was a long explainer on corn skiing and what it's all about. Hopefully your head isn't spinning too fast, but just remember the simple recipe. Melt plus freeze plus appropriate timing equals good time corn harvesting. Yeehaw! Funk break!
All right, let's talk about this storm. Starting on Monday night, we got 46 inches across the north half of the Wands with strong west-southwest winds. Tuesday night brought another couple of inches, and now some parts of the Wands, like Red Mountain Pass and Colbank Pass, have over a foot of fresh snow. This snow landed on a warm and wet snowpack, and below treeline, the snowpack is completely unsupportive and trapdoory, which can make for some dangerous exits to get back to your car. Now, more snowfall is expected throughout today, and we could get a final pulse of accumulations on Thursday night into Friday morning. Friday and Saturday look mostly sunny, and then we'll see more clouds on Sunday as another storm moves into the area, with potential for more snowfall on Monday and Tuesday of next week. Remember that with each of these new loads, it will take several days of sunshine and warm temperatures to make the corn. So practice patience if you're holding out for harvest, or go get some spring pow turns while you still can. Just watch out for those below treeline trap doors. It's a tricky transitional time for us here in the Wands. And if you're the kind of person who doesn't want to deal with all this bullshit, go out to the desert for a week or two. I bet the corn's going to be ripe by the time you get back. Hey, that's it for this week's show. Thanks as always for listening. And if you're new to the podcast, go ahead and check out some of those early season episodes. There's plenty of good wisdom to be found in those shows, even as we close out the winter season. I'm going to keep this show rolling into April. Why not? seems like there's more snow on the horizon and more skiing and riding to be done before we call it summer. So if you have any burning questions you want to hear answered on the show or ideas for future episodes, hit me up on Instagram at San Juan Snowcast or shoot me an email to sanwansnowcast at gmail.com. From the beginning, this has been 100% a grassroots effort with just me and you and the snow, and I'm super stoked on how far this project has come over the course of this winter. So please, help spread the word, get other folks tuned in, and there's no saying where this ride may take us. There is one sponsor that jumped on board at the very beginning and has been supporting me along the way this whole winter. And that's Mountain Trip. Bill and Todd, the owners of Mountain Trip, they have created a tight-knit family of passionate guides and educators who live to help others achieve their best adventures in the outdoors. And I feel really lucky to be a part of all of it. So come play with us. Learn more by visiting mountaintrip.com or by stopping by our office on Main Street in Telluride. All right, well, that's it. I hope you learned a thing or two about harvesting ripe corn in this episode. And I hope you stay safe out there. I say it every episode, but I mean it now more than ever. Take care of each other, friends. And until next time, think snow!